We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 159. Our guest today grew up in a big riding family with his father having tons of success as an equestrian. He has won virtually every major Grand Prix in the United States, and he also was the winner of the 1983 FEI World Cup Final in Vienna, Austria, as well as receiving individual Olympic bronze medal in the Barcelona Olympic Games in 1992. Even though our guest had seemingly a late start to the sport, he had incredible success early on and continues to have a successful program alongside his family. He has had a lot of great placings in the last years. He has consistently been on the top 30 on the Rolex and USEF National Show Jumping ranking list, as well as some amazing wins like the $100,000 World Cup qualifier in Quebec, Canada in 2012, as well as the $100,000 Angelstone Grand Prix and the $100,000 thousand dollar Grand Prix of Lake Placid. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Nick Delajoyo. Thank you so much for taking the time. I would love to hear a little bit about your life and how you got to where you are today, but I would first love to hear about how you first kind of found yourself in the horse world. Oh boy. So for me, I mean, it started basically when I was born, not for me as a rider, but as far as in the horse world, I mean, my dad is a, was, was a top rider for the U.S., and my and my mom and he have had a business since they were 18. So I was born into a, a family of show jumping. What was yeah. it? Yeah. What was that like? I mean, did you feel like you had obviously like big shoes to fill? Was there pressure there? Had you kind of been oh, no, in it for so long? <laughs> no, 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 no. I didn't start riding. So I was like, I never was interested in riding. Riding ah, wasn't for okay. me. I mean, I went to, uh, I mean, I went to school. I played all my school sports. I went to uh, middle school in Palm Beach and did like, uh, football, lacrosse, tennis. I was on the golf team. I did a lot of surfing, fishing. Summers were my sister and my mom and I, we'd go under the Keys or the Bahamas and do more beach type stuff. And dad was always just had the, the business and the and his own riding career. And he'd be off doing the horses and we, none of us really had any real interest in it. I mean, I think my sister did ponies a little bit, but for me, no, it was all about school sports and, and being kind of at the beach. So, yeah, so like everything riding, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, anti-horse, big time. I used to like to go to the show to watch dad ride on like a Sunday or something, especially as I got a little older because he had a couple of really good horses. So he was usually quite competitive. So that was always kind of fun, but just more to see like my dad be successful, not because I was really into the sport that much. Yeah, and so then, what um, changed? One year we were in, um, well, I'm honestly, it's kind of cheesy, but. I used to we used to ride all the time on this island in the Bahamas called Harbor Island. And for some reason, I was always obsessed with the horses on the island. It was like, it's only three miles long, like a mile wide, but there's this group of horses there. And whenever we'd go on vacation there, it was like our home away from home. I'd always be like, I can't wait to get on the horses. I want to ride down the beach. I want to like take out, I used to help the Rasta guy that ran the horse program there. Like I want to take all the clients out. And it was like my thing, love doing it. But then I didn't ride at all like in Wellington or when I was at home. And then that was kind of the start of it, I think, a little bit. And then I was like, oh, dad, can I get a little horse that I can ride bareback around? He's like, no, it's a waste of time and money. Like, we're not going to do that. But one year we were, one summer we were in Valkensvard, 
before the whole globals and all that started. I used to have a two week circuit and I don't know, this was a long time ago. This was when I was like maybe 15 or something. And I went there for the two weeks and was just with, you know, my mom, my dad and my sister. And I don't know. I just thought it kind of translated from riding a little bit in the Palmas. Like, Oh, maybe I'll try riding here. Like I got nothing else to do here in Holland. So I'll try it out. And uh, that was kind of a bit the start of it. And then I thought, okay, Neko, Nelson Pessoa gave me a horse, which was a pony in Europe, but it measured as a horse here in the States, which made it really hard in the jumper classes here because yeah. obviously its stride was a lot smaller. So I used to fall off a lot in the combinations and not get up the lines. And it was kind of a disaster. It was kind of like a hit or miss. So I did that for, I don't know, about a year. And then I think I gave up again, or maybe not even a year. And kind of gave up again and did more like I went to high school in Boca. So then I was on the golf team there and just kind of busy being like a high school student. And then, I don't know, then it kind of just, when I went to school in Boston for college, it kind of just, I got more and more into it. And I think I, I had good success quickly. And I feel like for me being a, a visual learner growing up, you know, immersed in this business helped me come a long way fast. So that kind of was exciting for me and then I just really when I got when I got a little bit better at it then I just fell in love with it and just realized there wasn't really anything else that I wanted to do but I'm very lucky my parents you know being the son of you know successful parents in this, this sport to me you see a lot of kids start early get burned out or you know have a lot of success early and, and then don't really want to do it or feel like it's kind of the only thing that they know I was lucky enough to, to kind of grow up not doing it doing everything else and then coming to that realization a little bit more you know on my own if you will Totally. Yeah. That's, that's such a unique route to get to where you are today. That's pretty awesome. So as you were kind of figuring things out and had been watching a lot, but then you were, you know, now doing it for the first time. I was always, yeah, I was always like into it, but not, but not like, Oh, I want to try it. You know, it was always kind of fun. And dad was, you know, so good that it was always like fun to be, you know, on his team, you know what I mean? Especially going to shows or the world cup finals or you know, whatever it was, he won you know, a lot of big Grand Prix as I started to get more into the sport. So it was also kind of a, an easy transition and seeing their training and, and how, you know, what it took to get to that level, you know, I think gave me a little bit of a leg up if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what that was like for your dad. Obviously he didn't like push you to do or be a part of the sport in a big way, kind of obviously let you do your own thing. Yeah. Both of them. So what, what were their thoughts once you did start getting really into it? That this was probably going to be a lot more expensive than they wanted for their kids that <laughs> yeah. golf clubs and tennis rackets for a lot cheaper. No, they were into it, but again, they, they never pushed. I mean, they, they really never pushed. They were, they were like, listen, if you want to ride, sure. That's great. We'd love if you ride, but you're not going to ride. Like you're going to, you know, if you want to go surfing one day or go scuba diving one day, but like, if you're going to ride, this is, this takes a lot of, you know, a dedication, a lot of time. And this isn't just like a hobby thing. If you're going to do it, you got to do it one way. Cause there's one way to be successful. And that was just basically their, their point, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, obviously you had some early success. What were the like challenging points of starting? I mean, you know, along a lot of competitors who you were, you know, competing against had probably been riding since they were like four. <laughs> so what was that like for you? Did you feel like you were always playing catch up or how was that process like? 
No, not really. I mean, I did, I kind of took it for what it was, but yeah, sure. Like when I first went to like Devon and places like that, I think I did one stride in the two stride at USEP finals. I think like I chipped like every class at Devon. Like I didn't really care. Yeah, I was like, yeah. I'd be riding around the ring and Misty who had offered to help me when I was young would be like, change your diagonal. And I'd be like, Oh, okay. Sorry. You know, like <laughs> wasn't like a, I had no junior career, you know, mm-hmm. the, all these kids have like, they make some huge emphasis about this junior career, which I guess is important if you don't want like a professional career, but you know, it's a long mm-hmm. road to the middle and I think people need to keep things in, in perspective. I mean, just cause you win the McClay finals doesn't mean you win the gold medal at the Olympics, you know? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so, that's the beauty of our sport is that you can for be sure. at the top, at the top of your game for quite a long bit of time where a lot of other sports, it's like you have this tiny window where you have to peak and otherwise it's not going to work. Yeah. And it doesn't mean because you, you know, won a lot of high junior classes, that means you're going to win a lot of grand prix either. You know, you see, you see things, you know, how things unfold from a lot of examples, I'm sure in the past. So I think as long as you have a good idea of how to, how to, you know, to know what's best for you or what's best for your program or however long it takes you to kind of get to, to like, for me, it was, you know, like I said, I had no junior career. I was learning what diagonal I was on. I was just kind of getting my <laughs> feet wet, but then like I was able to place and maybe some bigger classes quicker than kids that started on ponies. But I think it's, it's really how you kind of immerse yourself and how you dedicate yourself to, you know, whatever situation you're in or whatever program you're in to kind of make sure you kind of get the best out of it. For me, for sure, I was lucky. I had a leg up being in a program with my, my parents, but some people look at that. They're like, wow, that's just like, oh yeah, it handed to them. But no, actually quite the opposite. We're like a working family in the, mm-hmm. in the industry. And it's also, as I'm sure a lot of people can attest, not always easiest to work with your family. So, yeah. especially, so. Yeah, I was, I was literally just going to ask that. What have been some of the best parts or like some of the like coolest pieces of advice that you've gotten from your parents and what have been some challenges working with in a family dynamic with this sport? I don't know if there's been any been best piece. I mean, everything they say is, you know, it's a lot different for me because when you work with your family and you work with someone, they actually, like, I'm not, I'm not paying them. So they actually, they, they have the passion, they have the desire and they have the want for me to do well because they love me and they want to see me be successful. Whereas, you know, you can't really, I mean, you can do that and, but it's different from like a client trainer based type relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think no matter whatever way you slice the cake, it's a little bit of an advantage if, if you have that on your side. So for me, that's, I'm super fortunate to, to be in, in that position. And then on the downside, it's also like, you know, it's, it's, you're working with your family. So you never really get that much time to, you know, you're kind of, it's not really a separation if if you will, there's a lot of, you know, your personal, your, it all kind of ties into one. Mm -hmm. So especially growing up, you know, wake up in the morning, you'd be talking about it, breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, when you go to (laughs) bed, when you wake up on vacation, but at the same time, I think that also makes a difference to help, like I said, get you further faster, you know? Definitely. You you alluded to the, like that you are a visual learner, which for this sport is so amazing because there's so much 
to watch and, you know, to be a part of and, and to experience visually. What are some, like, do you have specific people that you like to watch or things that you like to do in order to kind of practice that visual learning aspect of your own training? I say there's any, I mean, yeah, there's a, definitely a few riders to watch, but I think, I mean, you can learn a lot from, from all the, you know, quote unquote good riders. I mean, everybody does things their own way. Everyone has a different system. For me, I like to take pieces from everybody. I like to learn a little bit from everyone. What you know, it's not like scripture. What one person said that you have to do, or like mm-hmm. listen to some code. So, I mean, McLean Ward rides a lot different than Roger Eve Boast, and yep. you know they both win a lot of classes. So for me, that's kind of the way that I see things for the sport. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, you still have to figure out what works for you and all of your individual you and, horses. And, yeah, I mean how many people, times do you go to a horse show and you hear someone screaming at their client from a jump and they could be a trainer or a used car salesman. You have no idea. You know what I mean? It's really easy to put a sure. hat on and say, you know, you run this farm and, you know, get sure. deeper, get longer. So yeah. you got to be careful the route you take and the device you take. But for me, visually, it was, you know, okay. I was lucky again, fortunate being in a business with two professionals that I, you know, know what they're doing, mm-hmm. but also um, watching their day-to-day work. And then go, getting to go to shows that say dad at the peak of his career, watching, you know, the World Cup finals and watching, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that where you're, you are watching the best of the best all the time. So for me, that was also su- super helpful. Totally. If you've been riding for a bit, chances are you have the blisters, saddle sores and rubs on your feet and your heels to prove it. So Dreamers and Schemers has amazing boot socks that are not only super cute, but they have a lightly padded and moisture wicking footbed and flat seam toe to really protect those problem areas. But not only are Dreamers and Schemers socks a great way to express yourself in a subtle way, but they also have an amazing feature and that is the black cuff at the top of the sock to prevent any pattern peekaboo in the ring. The super fun colors and amazing quality also extends to the other Dreamers and Schemers products and those are the main Jane leather belts and leather spur straps. They literally carry any color and texture leather you can possibly think of with amazing reversible belts. I love the main Jane belts and really heavy duty and fashionable spur straps. So to find out more information, head over to their website at dreamersandschemers.com. That's D-R-E-A-M-E-R-S-N-S-C-H-E-M-E-R-S.com. Thank you so much, Dreamers and Schemers. All right, let's head back to the episode. When you are picking out horses or finding finding horses that work well for your program, do you have a type? Do you have some some specific traits that you always kind of depends? Like I always think a good amateur horse, you know, a good junior amateur horse, I always prefer a bit of blood with fast feet because, you know, everybody makes mistakes and every junior and amateur makes mistakes. So we kind of always like to have a horse that we know dad always says that has like a leg on the ground, you know, Mm -hmm. that can think fast, that can add a stride, that can leave a stride out. I think when, when we're trying to find horses for juniors, amateurs that have a slow methodical type canter, it's kind of, it's easy to see a stride on until it's not easy to see a stride on, you know, you get kind of stuck Right. in my opinion on like a half stride easily or like a chip easily. So I typically like more of a modern sport horse type, you know, a little lighter, a little bloodier, able to get himself out of trouble if need be. And also that way for this big sport too. I mean, I, I've had successful horses jump Grand Prix that were like 
massive equitation types or wild Indian, you know, crazy yeah. horses. I mean, I've had, had every end of the spectrum, but I mean, if I could pick a, a type for myself, it would be, you know, a bloody quick horse that had quick scope and was very sharp, very careful. Cause that's what also, you know, typically wins the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. What are um, some things that you like to set up at home to help, you know, keep your eye sharp, keep your, you know, work on your pace, work on your straightness, get your horses ready for the ring. Obviously knowing that each horse requires a certain type of prep, depending on what their, you know, downfalls or, or things that they do really well are. We're not extremely complicated. You know, one thing I actually learned from, I used to get uh, a little bit of help once in a while, like when I was up in the area from McLean and, and his father and they, you know, it was pretty, you know, especially McLean was one of the most decorated riders of our generation or mm-hmm. you just, they're so simple. There's just, everything is just done correctly and simple. And it's the same way. Like we don't have gymnastics and rails everywhere and all kind of like science experiments going on in the ring. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if you stick to the basics and you do the basics, well, really well and you're hyper hyper focused on making sure that your seat your leg and your hand are kind of guiding the horse then i think then you sure you can pick on like if a horse has a drift or a horse needs to you know do this or that i think you can pick that horse specific but on a day-to-day no i think you the importance of flat work is uh you know like at the peak of our program and for for us so that they listen to you and then jumping is really kind of the fun part but but a couple of little things would be like a lot of time we set up a rail nine feet out from a vertical and we use that exercise a lot basically for the rider to stay patient because it's really hard when you can't especially as the vertical gets bigger to try to just focus on the rail nine feet in front of the vertical and let the horse just jump to jump i mean that's something that mm-hmm. i guarantee you you know nine out of ten people have a hard time doing that um, it just forces you to stay patient and then it also makes the horse pat the ground on their own and and puts the jump on them, helps them move their feet faster, helps them get their balance, helps them pat the ground, and it helps the riders stay quiet off the ground. So, I mean, say around nine feet out, configurating an oxer would probably be the two things that I would do the most um, for any horse at any level to get them to use their eye and to get me, myself as the rider, to slow myself down and, and kind of wait for the horse to come to me. I think people that have these like i mean sure there's books and you know you can do an, a million different gymnastics and those all might help but for me personally in the way that we teach and that we ride i think if you keep the, the basics as the the most important part and then little exercises like that where you're kind of making the horse think for themselves and making the rider slow down those are kind of basically what we do yeah, love that. Yeah, I think that's it's always important to uh, remember not to overcomplicate things. So I think you can make it. this the most complicated sport <laughs> in the whole entire world. Yeah, I mean, you can literally, and I'm sure you see and hear it all the time. You can make this the most complex sport in the world, but at the end of the day, most horses want to jump over the sticks clean, and the riders, mm-hmm. you know, get in their way. So I think, you know, that's you know, you I like to keep it simple and try to keep it simple for my students as well and you know i think it's 90 percent mental mm-hmm. and then 10 percent you need the right animal and then yeah yeah i think that's kind of that puts the you way at 100 to... <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah um switching gears a little bit tell me i know you have um been a big supporter of toys for tots so tell me a little bit about um 
that experience and kind of what you're doing with that organization? We just had like, we, we had this bar and barbecue that we would do every year and it kind of got a bigger and bigger following from a lot of friends. And we thought to ourselves, it'd be nice to give back and do it. And, you know, everyone loves the holiday season and thought there's no better way and no better charity for sure. Obviously there's no, obviously I can't say there's no better charity, but you know, there are so many charities about, you know, cancer, poverty and and things like that. But I don't know. We just thought toys for tots was a little more fun, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit more festive at that time. And it was fun to have everyone to bring a toy to the party and, and, you know, see the Marines come and take this huge trailer loads of toys away, knowing that kids are going to have a little bit of a nicer Christmas. Definitely. Yeah. For, for anyone listening, looking for ways to get involved in something like that, where would you, what, what um, advice would you give or where would you direct them? For our particular charity? Yeah. I think every year on, I think my Instagram or the website every year, kind of closer to the date, I think we usually start opening up a GoFundMe early November. Okay. And we, you know, last year, this, this year, this past year was a little bit harder, just obviously with COVID and everything, mm-hmm. it was harder for people to kind of come to the party, but we think we still did like 18 grand or something like that. But a lot of times in the past, we'll do like, you know, 20 grand and also, you know, a ton of people come to the party and bring tons of toys and, mm. and, you know, it's really fun going to Toys R Us or Walmart or whatever with 20 grand to spend on toys, you know, <laughs> imagine how many shopping carts it is. It takes forever. Yeah. But that also like, and for us, it also makes, you know, it makes it that much more special to actually go and physically do all the work to get these toys and then bring all the toys to the party and then stack them up and the Marines mm-hmm. come, you know, see their appreciation. They're telling us that we're like the, one of the biggest, uh, supporters in the county and you know that's kind of fun with thinking it just came from this little holiday pig roast we had to yeah a huge party wow that's so cool yeah tell me a little bit about an area of the industry of the horse world that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or just doesn't talk that much about i, I mean i guess i'm passionate about the fact that i don't love how expensive it's becoming yeah i mean i think it's becoming harder and harder for well, I mean, the price of horses, which has been driven up like astronomically, it's. I mean, it's great if you're on the selling end. It's awful if you're on the buying end. And how expensive it is to, to horse show. And I don't really see a solution in the near future from the powers that be. I don't really think there's enough discussion or enough enough. You know, people talk about it a lot, and it's like topic of you know discussions on forums and stuff like that. But realistically, like if you break it down, why? the costs are this or why we're we're being charged to to do this as much as we are why they think it's increasingly getting more and more expensive it just kind of be interesting i mean i i mean i'm at i'm guilty as well like i also don't uh, look into it enough but for sure like i'm riding a horse from a, a friend of mine who who lives in europe and she just got an fei bill from a show that i was at this past week and she was like oh my god like it's like thousands of dollars more yeah. per week to jump an fei division than it is in europe but, but why I mean, yeah. the same prize money, you know, why don't we produce young horses in Europe? I mean, in America, because mm-hmm. it's, it, it's too expensive. I mean, we don't, how are we supposed to buy a five-year-old, bring it here? And there's no money in the five-year-olds. It costs the same thousand dollars to show it for the three classes for the week. Then you still have to pay, you know, your, all your expenses and your housing and your groom salaries. And I mean, it's, they kind of make the sport more difficult here when I'm, they should kind of do the opposite because I think, you know, we've proven to be one of them 
most competitive countries in our sport. So I think they should try to find a way to make it. But I don't know. I say they like I know who they are, but <laughs> we as a community need to find a way to make it more affordable for everyone to take part. Yeah, it's and it's one of those topics that's. I think extra tricky because there isn't a cut and dry solution to it. It's just going to take more and more people trying to start a conversation and talking about it. But I think there are some, you know, people and some organizations that are trying to create more grants and scholarship programs. And, and that's, I think, a, a step in the right direction. But that's um, a step in the right But then on the flip side, it's hard because like me being on the, the business side of it and this, mm-hmm. you know, how I earn a living is like, you know, it's also nice when you have people that buy, are buying expensive horses so right. that for us selling expensive horses or whatever, you know, I don't know. It's hard. I yeah. Mean, and that's, and it's a big part of your business and why you can do what you do. So massive. It's, yeah, totally. Yeah. That's just the, the major part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just kind of like a double-edged sword in that way. So I don't really know the solution, but I mm-hmm. think it's going to get to a point where it's going to be, you know, unaffordable for most people to mm-hmm. show jump, which is hard. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that was a good one for sure. What does this next year kind of look like for you as far as some goals you have for yourself, some, some shows you're looking forward to and things that you're looking to achieve? Well, it all kind of just changed recently. I had a, a really special horse, um, named Blueberry and I was planning on, you know, she had just jumped her first few five-star Grand Prix in Wellington and had placed pretty successfully in them. And I was kind of looking forward to the later part of the summer and on to next year and maybe doing some team competitions and championships and try to kind of enter that stage of, of my riding. But unfor- well, fortunately, unfortunately, I just sold her two weeks ago. So I've picked up the ride in a couple of the horses. I just bought an interesting Scopey horse today, actually, to maybe be potential horse for next next year and, and kind of starting Florida in the five-star Grand Prix. So for me, it's on a, I'm a, on a little, not on a rebuild, but my plan is to go buy a few younger horses and develop them. I have a few older ones that I can kind of step up into the Grand Prix for the rest of the summer. I use those a bit and try to come out next year with a good, strong group of horses again. Love it. Awesome. Again, the beauty of the sport is that you can, I mean, obviously when the opportunity arises, it's, it'd be amazing just to keep all your great ones, but to be able to sell some. (laughs) If you look at horses that I've been successful with in my time jumping Grand Prix, I mean, I think I've, I've never kept one. I've, Mm -hmm. I've kept one and yeah, the one that I kept ended up going lame, so I couldn't ride her anymore. Yeah. She's she's uh, turned out in Europe having babies. So, oh. you know, for me on the professional side of things, it's like I've always been there. You know, bring them to the top and then move them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. But, but the, yeah, there's no rhyme or reason. You can never predict <laughs> what is going to happen. That's for sure. No, not at all. Well, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I know you're like right in the middle of a horse show. So thanks for taking the time (laughs) to chat with me. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was good talking to you. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.